Let us pray. O God, our Father, we give thee thanks for all thou hast given unto us, and we bless thee for the privilege we have of bringing back to thee a portion of our good and asking thee to guide in their use to the end that they might bring glory unto thy name and help unto many people. And now, Father, wilt thou cause the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts to be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The average Christian fights shy of the book of Revelation. It seems to him a well-nigh incomprehensible book. I think I can understand the reason for this. It is because many of us have had contact with some people with very fanciful interpretations. I can still remember as a little boy walking down to the market square in the town in East Texas where I live and hearing a man screaming to the top of his voice and pointing to horrible pictures on a great chart. And I was afraid, and for a long time I didn't read the book of Revelation. I didn't read it because uh, I was frightened by the imagery that I saw there, angels, demons, lambs, lions, horses two particularly unattractive beasts with ten heads and seven horns and so on. This bothered me. And then as I began to grow older, and especially after I went through a, an experience with Christ in which I yielded my life to him, and I understood that all of the Bible was given to us for instruction, then I began to take seriously this book of the Revelation. I remember going one time alone and reading the entire book through at one long sitting, and it brought to me a blessing such as I have seldom had in times in which I have read the Bible. And as the years had gone by, the book has become more and more precious to me. Not that I understand all that the book of the Revelation is trying to say to us, but because those parts that I do understand are very precious. First of all, we are to remember this. This book claims to be a revelation. The revelation not of St. John the Divine, as the King James Version inaccurately puts it, but a revelation of Jesus Christ. A revelation of Jesus Christ given to his servant John, and given to his servant John to give to the church. And therefore, it carries with it a blessing for those who read it, a curse for those who tamper with it, and a reward to the church by following its instruction. We have thought in past weeks about what is a Christian college. We thought about what is a Christian. And then when we begin to think about the fellowship of the Christians in the church, surely it is appropriate to think about the church. That's why we sang those two hymns, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. That's why we sang, I love thy kingdom, Lord. That's why I read to you the first lesson when Paul addresses a group of office bearers in a church in Ephesus. It is because this book of the Revelation, and the word revelation means to unveil, to pull back the curtain so that you can see. This book of the Revelation carries with it what Christ last word to the church was in Holy Scripture. 
the words which he speaks to seven churches, a church in Ephesus, a church in Smyrna, a church in a place called Pergamos, a church in Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, and to a little church in a cove up in the valley in North Carolina called Montreat. Because just as these letters of Paul to the Corinthians or to the Ephesians or to the Thessalonians or to the Philippians were written specially to churches, so these letters to the seven churches in Asia are directed to us for our instruction too. And so let's look first this morning to this church in Ephesus. First of all, it will help us to understand something about Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. There in Ephesus stood a gigantic temple to Diana, as the King James puts it, or Artemis, Diana of the Ephesians, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, an enormous thing. There in Ephesus, there was a city of great immorality, a city of great commercial importance, a city that was full of religion and superstition and of the occult, a city famous for its shrines. And this city became the object of the work of the heralds of Christ. First, there went a man by the name of Apollos, and he preached in Ephesus. And you remember Apollos preaching to a little group of believers who had heard John the Baptist's preaching or had heard of it, and believed that the Messiah had come, and Apollos, the eloquent preacher, went there and spoke. But his doctrine was imperfect. But there were two Christians there by the name of Priscilla and Aquila, I've often wondered why the woman's name is put first in that two, Priscilla and Aquila. Anyway, they heard Apollos and invited him home, I expect, for Sunday dinner after church. And they explained to him the way of Christ more perfectly. He was preaching all of the gospel that he knew, but he did not know it as well as he should have. And so there were some who instructed him more fully. They told him things which he had not yet learned about Christ. You remember that to Ephesus came Paul, and he saw something wrong in the church there. I've often wondered what he saw when he met with these believers. Maybe it was a lack of love. And Paul asked them a deeply personal question, maybe a question that I've often thought should be asked of the entire Presbyterian church. Paul said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And these people in Ephesus said, we have not so much as even heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. And so Paul instructed them again more perfectly in the way. And they were rejoicing in a newfound faith, a faith that gave them a new appreciation of salvation through the work of Christ, and a faith that gave them a new and vigorous guidance under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Well, right away, the church in Ephesus began to make its uh, influence felt. Paul began to go and to preach about Jesus Christ in the synagogue that was there. People were converted. The conversion spread. 
and then a riot occurred. Someone has said that wherever St. Paul went, there was either a riot or a revival or both, and it was so in Ephesus. St. Paul preached, and so many people were being converted that the silversmiths' union got up in arms. They made little tiny images to Diana of the Ephesians. And so their trade was put in jeopardy because Paul began to preach unto them faith in the true and the living God, and that their little image of Diana was no goddess at all. And so the trade began to fall immediately. They were threatened by Paul's preaching, and Demetrius, the head of the silversmith's local 101, called a meeting of his union, denounced the Christian messenger, and and began to foment a great riot that took place. And so out of this riot, Paul's life was put in great danger. Paul was always being threatened by people who were going to assassinate him or to kill him. He lived very dangerously. But he kept on preaching the word there, and then after a while he left Ephesus to continue uh, his preaching. Now the discourse that I read to you, which he made to the elders of that church, came... Some years later, when Paul came back into the city of Ephesus, he didn't come all the way to the city, actually. He sent from about 30 miles for the elders of the church to come to him. He was on his way to Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem he would go on to Rome, and from Rome he would die. He would be killed for his faith in Christ. He wanted to talk to these elders in this church in Ephesus. He instructed them. He warned them about false teaching that would come. He told them that he had declared unto them the whole counsel of God, and so he was free from the blood of all men. You see, Paul believed there was a heaven and that there was a hell, and that which way you went determined on what you did with Jesus Christ. We have a lot of preachers preaching now who don't believe that, but they're very much out of step with Jesus and Paul and the New Testament. Paul believed it, and he said, I am free from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. You need both sides. You need grace, and you need judgment as well. And this also deals with a multitude of other things that are thorny and sticky, uh, racial problems, injustice that exists on many levels, immorality. Well, Paul declared unto them all the counsel of God, and told them that he was going away, and that these elders were by the Holy Spirit made overseers of this flock. And Paul leaves. About 25 years have passed now, and the church in Ephesus not only had such people as Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila, and later Timothy as a bishop, and Paul as a preacher to them, but John himself had preached there in Ephesus, and now John is exiled on the island of Patmos because of his faith in Jesus Christ. A great persecution had arisen, and John is there on an island. And there on this island, John is visited by the living Christ in a vision. And the living, ascended, glorified Christ dictates unto John a message a message that is to go to this church back in Ephesus and a message which is to go to the church here in Montreat, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. 
I've often wondered about this word to the angel. The word angel can mean a messenger, or it can mean a, a being specially created of God that is, who is different from those of us who are human beings, a super being. But you know, the more I read this, I think to the angel of the church at Ephesus does not mean any superhuman being. But I rather think it means a preacher. Maybe the local pastor in Ephesus. Maybe one of the ruling elders who had been given charge of the church there to the angel, to the messenger who had taken the message of Christ to the church in Ephesus, write these words. And so when I begin to think of it this way, it personalizes it for me. And I wonder what Christ would say to me about the church in Montreat. Here is what he is saying to this church in Ephesus, and there is a message here for us also. These are the words of the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven lamps of gold. I know all your ways, your toil, and your fortitude. First of all, there is a word to the church in Ephesus of commendation. And I'm sure that there would be a word to those of us in Montreat of commendation. I don't know of any church anywhere where in the women's circles and where in the men's meetings and where in the office bearers and their responsibility to the church, you see a finer spirit exemplified than we do here. I've often marveled at this. When we have a session meeting, although we do not have a large session, nearly every man is present. And the prayers that are offered there are earnest and intense prayers, and I am moved by them. There is an unusually good record of attendance at church by the members of the Montreat Church. Well, there was commendation here to this church in Ephesus. I know your works. I know that you're a beehive of activity. I know that you have many Bible studies. I know that you have many prayer meetings. I know that you do many good things. I know that you cannot endure evil men. You have put to the proof those who claim to be apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. There is commendation not only for the good works, but for the orthodoxy of the church in Ephesus. And this is a commendation that is scarce today. You'd have a very difficult time being tried for heresy in a lot of churches and in a lot of presbyteries in the General Assembly of our denomination. This is a book that has bothered me that I'm reading. It's a very interesting book, and I heartily commend it to you if you're a serious churchman. It's called The Protest of a Troubled Protestant by Harold O. Brown. This is a brilliant graduate of Harvard Divinity School, a PhD from Harvard University, who begins to go through much that is taking place in the church at large, the whole Protestant church. <coughs> and do you know what he says to us? He says the test of orthodoxy now no longer has to do with what you believe about Jesus Christ, his virgin birth or his resurrection or heaven or hell or the great teachings of the church. But the test of orthodoxy is whether or not you will support the program 
of the denomination. The test of orthodoxy is whether you are faithful to the mechanics and the machinery and the mechanism. This you will be judged on, but not your faith. I think Harold Brown has a, has a real good point, one that we ought to take into consideration. For if we project present trends into the future a few years, we are going to see great events take place in the church. We will see the putting together of a huge super church. This could be a very good idea and it could be a very bad idea. It will depend on how loyal such a church organization would be to the teachings of Jesus Christ. This is where the loyalty would be. Put to the test, oh, there are many things that we ought to put put to the test today. We ought to put to test some of the new morality, the sad, tragic figure of the brilliant Bishop Pike, who helped to put together, by the way, the big church that's coming. Here you see a type of morality that's contrary to what Jesus taught. Bishop Pike says, for instance, if my wife is naggy and incompatible, and if I have a neighbor who is unsatisfied, dissatisfied with his wife, and we affect some type of liaison which makes me more cheerful at home and makes her better to her husband at home, this could be a situation in which this would be the greater good to commit immorality or adultery there. Now, I'm not distorting his teaching. That's what he said. Well, you can't square that with what Jesus taught. You can't square it with the Ten Commandments. And yet if we move in a direction where we do not test the truth, this is what's going to happen. We will lose our distinction. When I have a young person blithely speak to me about getting an abortion, as though it were just like washing her hair out, I know that there are many churchmen who have espoused things that lead in this direction. And I know that this is contrary to what Jesus teaches. And I have to raise my voice in dissent and protest against it. Well, this church in Ephesus protested and tested those who were not faithful and true to Christ. And that's good. And I think we would do that here. It's interesting you look for authority. Poor Bishop Pike. He looked for authority started off wonderfully well and then began to drop aside the great doctrines, the resurrection of Christ, his virgin birth, the authority of Scripture, then went into this morality which is really not a morality, and then went from this into a spiritism, a talking with the dead. All over America today, the great resurgence of interest in astrology the demon worship that has occurred out in California and which spreads, the fact that we are full of superstition, people are looking for authority. Well, the church in Ephesus and all of the superstition that existed in that city held faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, so there is commendation for the church's work and activity, for its endurance under local opposition, and for its orthodoxy. I know that you hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the destroyers of the people associated with those who would 
uh, advocate uh, such immoralities as I have just mentioned. But secondly, the risen Christ speaks to the church in Ephesus and to us too. There could be a lesson for us as individuals. I have this against you. You have lost your early love. Here is a church that is active and vigorous. Here is a church that is orthodox, that has endured opposition. And yet here is a church that has lost its love, its glow, its fervor for Jesus Christ. And this is devastating. You have lost your early love. Now this speaks to us. Let me ask you this question. How long has it been since you've talked to another person about your Lord Jesus? Or do you ever or have you ever? Or does he mean that much to you? How long has it been? How long has it been since you just sat down with the Bible and read it and enjoyed it and prayed, not only for our missionaries and for our church and its problems, but for your family and its needs? Do you ever pray together as a family? Read the Bible and pray? Has your boy or girl ever seen you down on your knees in prayer? I have something against you. You have lost your early love. You remember, all of you know Benjamin Lacey Rose up at Union Seminary. I heard him preach one of the best sermons I ever heard in Anderson Auditorium. He said this. He said, the Spirit of God has been speaking to me. And he said, do you know what the Spirit said? The Spirit said to me, Ben, what's the matter with you? I remember when you used to determine that you would not let a day go by, but what you would witness to some person about your faith in Christ. But you don't do that anymore, Ben. What's the matter with you? And Dr. Rose said to us, I think this must be a haunting feeling that many of us have. You have lost your early love. This is a tragedy in a home when love begins to fade away. I talked with a woman once who loved her house more than she loved her husband, literally. They were in a big jam financially, and she gave him an ultimatum. She said, if we lose this house, we're through. She's a Presbyterian. She loved the house literally more than him. And I think this happens to us sometimes. We can love the mechanics and the church itself even more than Christ. But this is not right. Think from what height you have fallen. Think from what height you have fallen, repent, and do as you once did. If you get lost on a road, the sensible thing to do is to go back down the road where you got lost and get back on it again. Otherwise, if you do not repent, I shall come to you and remove your lamp from its place. I have been reading the life of Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, who is better known as Lenin. Outside of the Apostle Paul, I have never read such dedication in one mortal man. 
I advise you to read a life of Lenin. When Fanny Kaplan shot him twice in the neck and nearly killed him and the people were all gathered around him, Lenin scoffed. He said, revolutionaries are supposed to be shot. What does it matter? He worked 20 out of 24 hours. When someone got a sheepskin, took the sheepskin that was under his, uh, under his desk where he warmed his feet in the cold Moscow weather and put there a polar bear rug, he said, take it away. The peasants don't have it. He was austere, disciplined, and dedicated, and he sought to teach it. Now then, what about those of us who love Jesus Christ? Are we willing to be as dedicated to him, and I'm saying this to myself, am I willing to be as dedicated for Jesus Christ as, as Lenin was for atheism? This is why the church failed in Russia. That lack of dedication for the love of the Lord. When the revolution broke out in 1917, and that fateful car over there in Bern, Switzerland, was filled with Lenin and the others who came back to Russia, the church was having a big debate on how long the petticoats of the Orthodox priests were to be. This was it. Do we really take seriously the business of communicating Jesus Christ to others? The complaint is you have left your first love. And it closes with the command, look back. Look back at that love that you lost and that blessedness that you knew and go back to it once again. Go back to it once again. Let me close by telling you an interesting experience I had three, two weeks ago. I was out in Texas visiting a church. Most unusual group of people I ever saw for their dedication. My, what an inspiration. We talked about their pastor, and I heard him give his testimony. And do you know what he said in his testimony? He said that after he had been a pastor for years in the Presbyterian ministry, had gone through one of our seminaries with a straight A average, that he did not know Christ. One day in his church, as he was driving to work, he thought how boring it all was. And he said that he considered himself just a glob of grease to keep the ecclesiastical machinery running. And he thought he would drop out of the ministry. But then he began to read in the Gospel of Mark, looking for Jesus to speak to him. Then he began to go into the book of Acts and he began to search his heart to see whether he really believed that these things were true and if they were, what he should do knowing that they were true. And as a result of it, God met him in a great experience that transformed his life and his entire ministry. Now the secret about it is this. There were a little group of people in his church who were praying for him. I met some of those people two weeks ago. And I thought, now this is a remarkable thing. Most of the time a minister goes and people in the church are converted. 
But here is a case where a church converts the preacher. What a church. It was no surprise to see the good works that emanated from that congregation. To go out into a Negro Mexican district and see the number of medical doctors in that local church who rationed their time and went there to treat poor people who couldn't afford treatment. It was no surprise to me to learn of the number of prayer groups that met in small groups for earnest Bible study and prayer and for a program of confronting people not by saying, come and join our church, but we want you to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. You see, that's putting the emphasis where it should be. And that's what's happened. That's what happened in one church to the angel, angel of the church in Ephesus, to the preacher of the church in Montreal, to you and to me. Go back to your first love. Love him more, and from this, serve him better. Let us stand in prayer. O God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that thou hast given unto us the church to nurture us and to feed us on the word of God and to bless us in fellowship with each other. And so we pray that the strong driving wind of the Holy Spirit may continue to sweep through the church, correcting us where we've gone astray and empowering us to do the work of Christ. We do pray that thou wilt lead us back to that first love for him and deliver us from cold and superficial professionalism. Help us to have that dedication which will make him known. This we ask in his name.